Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Thursday, August 10th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today how the U.S. pressured Pakistan to remove Imran Khan. So this is a huge story from The Intercept that was published on Wednesday. So the U.S. State Department encouraged the Pakistani government in a March 7th, 2022 meeting to remove Imran Khan as prime minister over his neutrality on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this is according to a classified Pakistani government document that was obtained by The Intercept. So the meeting, which was between the Pakistani ambassador to the United States and two State Department officials, has been the subject of intense scrutiny, controversy, and speculation in Pakistan over the past year and a half, as supporters of Khan and his military and civilian opponents jockeyed for power. The political struggle escalated on August 5th when Khan was sentenced to three years in prison on corruption charges and taken into custody for the second time since his ouster. Khan's defenders dismissed the charges as baseless, and the sentence also blocks Khan, Pakistan's most popular politician, from contesting elections expected in Pakistan later this year so he cannot run. And this is huge. Again, you know, he's been saying that the U.S. pressured Pakistan to oust him this whole time. That's what his supporters have been saying. And now this is proof that the U.S. uh, did. So one month after the meeting with U.S. officials documented in the leaked Pakistani government document, a no-confidence vote was held in parliament, leading to Khan's removal from power. The vote is believed to have been organized with the backing of Pakistan's powerful military, Since that time, Khan and his supporters have been engaged in a struggle with the military and its civilian allies, whom Khan claims engineered his removal from power at the request of the United States. The text of the Pakistani cable produced from the meeting by the ambassador and transmitted to Pakistan has not been previously published. The cable, known internally as a cipher, reveals both the carrots and the sticks that the State Department deployed in its push against Khan, promising warmer relations if Khan was removed and isolation if he was not. So, again, this is huge. The document, labeled secret, includes an account of the meeting between State Department officials, including Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs, Donald Liu, and Assad Majid Khan, who at the time was Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S., The Intercept says that they received this from an anonymous source in the Pakistani military who said that they had no ties to Imran Khan or his party. The Intercept is publishing. They published the body of the cable. Um, So really, uh, I just want to go down. So this is a very long, you know, detailed article about this situation that you should all definitely check out if you have the time. But I mean, I I just want to go down to the cable itself to show you how, how this U.S. official worded this. So this was March 7th, 2022, and Khan just came, uh, made a trip to Russia that really angered the Americans. So again, the State Department official, Donald Liu, 
He said, quote, and again, this is his meeting with the Pakistani ambassador. Lou said, quote, people here and in Europe are quite concerned about why Pakistan is taking such an aggressively neutral position on Ukraine. If such a position is even possible, it does not seem such a neutral stand to us, end quote. So again, aggressively neutral. That's the way that they worded it. It's really uh, something. Um, so he continued that it was the view that this was that this position again that this neutral position was Khan's position is basically what this U.S. official is saying, and the Pakistani official replied that this was not a correct reading of the situation as Pakistan's position on Ukraine was a result of intense interagency consultations. Um, so just scrolling down a little more, I just want to get into the quote. Okay, so here we go. So here's a U.S. official basically saying, you know, this is the threat here. Uh, he said, quote, I think if the no confidence vote against the prime minister succeeds, all will be forgiven in Washington because the Russia visit is being looked at as a decision by the prime minister. Otherwise, I think it will be tough going ahead. I cannot tell how this will be seen by Europe, but I suspect their reaction will be similar, end quote. So again, I mean, it's really just something here um, to have this proof. And another thing that The Intercept mentions in this article is that all along, the U.S. State Department has been denying so strongly that they did anything like this. Um, so very revealing. And this, you know, on Tuesday, I saw a story that said the White House, again, Khan was just arrested saying that, oh, it's an internal matter for Pakistan, you know, which, how you know, when is that ever the U.S.'s view? The U.S. always thinks that they can comment on or pressure other countries uh, for their internal politics, especially when, you know, political opponents are arrested or jailed. Um, so, you know, I think that showed that showed that, you know, they don't like Khan. And then there's this. And again, it's because of his aggressively neutral stance on Ukraine. So again, go check that out if you have the time. Give that article a read. All right. So the next one here, President Biden orders bans on certain investments in China. So this has been a long time in the works. And President Biden on Wednesday signed an executive order banning American investments in certain technologies in China, marking a significant escalation in the economic war against Beijing. So the order prohibits American venture capital and private equity firms from investing in three technology technology sectors in China, semiconductors and microelectronics, that's one sector, quantum information technologies, and certain artificial intelligence systems. So the order restricting investments in China has been years in the making as Biden administration officials have been at odds over how far this executive action should go. I know they got a lot of input from Congress on uh, what they were going to do with this. And a Biden administration official said that the order also creates an outbound screening mechanism. Um, and I'm not sure exactly of the details of that, you know, but I, I would assume that that applies to, you know, say a company wants new investments in Chinese tech. I think the U.S. government is going to look at it. You know, Biden's using his executive power here. Um, and this is a pretty unprecedented move in the in this era of, you know, U.S.-China relations since they normalized relations in 1979 and began this very robust trade partnership. You know, that's all being uh, scaled back now. 
So the restrictions are being put in place under the guise of national security, and U.S. officials insist that they are not trying to hurt China economically, only prevent China's military from gaining access to U.S. technology. But that's obviously not how Beijing views the restrictions and other sanctions that the U.S. has placed on China's semiconductor industry. And the administration is kind of toning down its rhetoric, saying, you know, we're we're de-risking, we're not decoupling is how they put it, even though a lot of this technology is used for, you know, non-military related things that they're restricting to China. Uh, But earlier, the rhetoric was a little harsher. uh, And Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, no relation to Justin Raimondo, she previously said that the U.S. wants to work with other countries to slow down China's rate of innovation. So China is likely to respond to Biden's order in some way as it has previous as it has with previous economic measures. After the U.S. convinced the Netherlands and Japan to join in on sanctions restricting China's access to technology needed to make advanced semiconductors, Beijing banned products from the U.S. memory chip maker Micron. So what's really amazing here is that, you know, you have China take this action, which is clearly a response to what these Uh, sanctions that the U.S. imposed on China and, again, got other countries, the Netherlands and Japan, big exporters of this technology that they they need to make these advanced semiconductors. The U.S. gets other countries to do that. China responds, and Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, uh, you know, called it economic coercion, what China did. So then what is it that the U.S. is doing? Um, And more recently, China has restricted the export of gallium, which is a metal widely used in advanced microelectronics. And, you know, this order comes as the state of U.S.-China relations are at their lowest point in decades. And, you know, there's hawks in Congress, China hawks, that want to cut off trade with China altogether, which, I mean, that would take decades, and who knows if the U.S. economy can even handle that. Um, and But if that ever does happen, I mean, that's just going to make war much more likely between the two powers. Right now, the trade relationship is a huge um you know, reason why they, the, the U.S. should not go to war with China. So if you get rid of that, it's just going to heat things up more and make war much more likely. All right, the next one here, the U.S. eyes Australia as a missile testing ground. So the U.S. is considering using Australia as a missile testing ground as part of the AUKUS military pact. So AUKUS is a three-way deal between the U.S., Britain, and Australia primarily focused on technology sharing with the goal of Canberra acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. The three nations have also announced their intention to jointly develop hypersonic missiles. So U.S. Army Secretary Christine Warmuth said that Australia's contribution to AUKUS does not have to be in dollars and pointed to its vast uninhabited land as a testing ground for hypersonic and other types of long-range precision missiles. She said, quote, A challenge for us in the United States when it comes to hypersonics or even some of our things like the precision strike missile, which is not a hypersonic weapon but has very long ranges in some of its increments, for us to find open spaces in the United States where we can actually test these weapons, it's a challenge. Australia obviously has a tremendous amount of territory where that testing is a little bit more doable. So I think that's a unique thing as an example that the Australians bring to the table, end quote. And what's funny is uh, this made me extra angry today because earlier 
I was watching a nature documentary about Australia's deserts, you know, the center of Australia. It's a huge uh, area where that's, you know, basically uninhabitable. But, you know, there's a lot of really cool reptiles that live there. And, you know, if the U.S. does this, it's going to kill a lot of them and ruin their environment. Um, So another aspect of AUKUS is that the U.S. plans to increase its overall military presence in Australia, which involves sending more troops, bombers, and nuclear-powered submarines to the country. The buildup is part of the U.S.'s plans to prepare for a future war with China in the region. And critics of AUKUS and the growing U.S. presence in Australia argue that the arrangement will make Australia a target in a future U.S.-China war, which I think uh, is very clear. And Warmoth herself, she said earlier this year that the U.S. was preparing to win a war against China over Taiwan. And she named Australia as a place to stage weapons for the conflict. So, of course, Australia would be a target for China if war breaks out. All right, the next one here, Russia downs drones headed toward Moscow. So the Russian Defense Ministry said Wednesday that it shot down two drones overnight that were headed toward Moscow as there's been a significant uptick in Ukrainian attacks on the capital city. So the Russian Defense Ministry said, quote, an attempt by the Kiev regime to carry out a terrorist attack by unmanned aerial vehicles over the territory of the Moscow region was thwarted during the night. The two drones were shot down by air defense systems and quote, so according to the New York Times, Russian officials have said that they intercepted a total of 12 drones targeting Moscow over the past few weeks as the attempts to hit the city have become a near daily occurrence. So I haven't covered all of the drone attacks. They're kind of becoming a normal thing, but I figured because there's been a few this week or within the past week uh, that it was worth covering again. And this uptick in attacks, it comes after Ukrainian officials are, you know, taking credit for them. Uh, you know, they ditched their policy of ambiguity. Zelensky said a few weeks ago that the war is gradually returning to Russia, to Russia's territory, and what he called its symbolic centers. So Ukraine has broken, uh, sorry, I just said that, uh, So in early June, the the New York Times reported that the Biden administration was no longer concerned about Ukrainian attacks inside Russia escalating the war. So since that report came out, there's been a lot more Ukrainian attacks like this. And that signals, you know, the U.S. might be tacitly backing these uh, attacks. So just then the risk of escalation is still there. Their logic is that, oh, well, Putin hasn't attacked a NATO base yet. So he's probably not going to. That does seem to be the logic that the Biden administration uh, is operating with. All right, the next one here. So I left up the story from yesterday that Biden is expected to ask Congress for more Ukraine funds this week because there was another report on Wednesday from Politico that said he's expected to ask Congress on Thursday. So we might see that very soon. And that report also said it's probably going to include military aid for Taiwan. All right, the next one here, Poland to send additional 2,000 troops to the Belarus border. So Polish officials said Wednesday that Warsaw will send an additional 2,000 troops to reinforce its border with Belarus as tensions between the two neighbors continue to rise. So this is a Polish deputy interior uh, minister. He said that the deployment was double what the border guard requested. And one purpose of the deployment is to stem the tide of migrants illegally crossing the border. And Poland is blaming that on Belarus. They're saying that they're sending them over, you know, intentionally. Um, And Poland has been beefing up its border 
since Wagner fighters traveled to Belarus following the short-lived mutiny that Prigozhin launched. So this is an ongoing thing. Polish officials estimate that there are 4,000 Wagner members in Belarus. And last week, Polish Prime Minister Matuez Morawiecki claimed that the Russian mercenaries were sent to Belarus to destabilize NATO's eastern flank and warned that they could be planning provocations. So this area is becoming a major flashpoint you know, for a potential conflict between NATO and Russia because you have Russia warning Poland, you know, any attacks on Belarus we're going to treat as an attack on Russia. And you have the whole NATO alliance warning Russia and Belarus any attack on Poland is an attack on all of us. So it's just... Uh, an area I think we should, um, you know, keep an eye on. All right, so the next one here, the Niger junta accuses France of violating airspace. So Niger's ruling junta on Wednesday accused France of violating Niger's airspace and freeing terrorists as tensions continue to rise in West Africa after the ousting of Nigerian President Mohamed, Mohamed Bazoum. So the coup leaders shut down Niger's airspace on Sunday to prepare for potential military intervention as uh, ECOWAS has threatened to use force to reinstate Bazoum. So the junta, which is calling itself the National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, said that a French aircraft entered Niger from Chad on Wednesday morning despite the ban on air traffic. And they said it deliberately cut off all contact with their air traffic control and then the French are saying that they denied the accusation. They didn't deny that the flight happened, but they said it had been coordinated with Niger's military. So the junta said that France also unilaterally freed captured terrorists and claimed that the freed jihadists were planning attacks in the tri-border area where Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali meet. France also denied having released any terrorists. Um, so the Niger coup leaders also reported attacks on Niger military forces. And I saw some reports saying that they were accusing France of attacking them. But according to Africa News and other sources that I saw, that statement did not link the terrorist attacks um, with the terrorists allegedly released by France. And there is always a lot of fighting going on in Niger as I've said, as the U.S. you know counterterrorism effort there has not gone very well, and there's just been an uptick in their whole region, the Sahel region, a huge uptick in terrorist uh, you know activities in the past few years. Um, so also on Wednesday, Nigeria said that ECOWAS has not ruled out military intervention in Niger, and they're going to hold another summit on Thursday. And when asked on Tuesday if the U.S. would support their military action, this is what State Department spokesman Matthew Miller said. He said, quote, we are supporting a diplomatic path at the time, and I wouldn't want to speculate about other outcomes or policy changes that we might make at some other point, end quote. And Victoria Newland was just over there, and she did not get a warm reception, and she did not sound very hopeful that the junta is going to relinquish relinquish power so the next one here israel wants the u.s to give the saudis a defense commitment so israeli foreign minister eli cohen has called for the u.s to provide saudi arabia with defense commitments as israel is vying for a normalization deal with riyadh so 
you know, the situation right now, an Israeli-Saudi normalization deal is expected to be a very long way off. I would be surprised if it happened. You know, the Biden administration wants to get it done before the 2024 election, but I'd be surprised if that happened. But Saudi Arabia has been looking to get security guarantees out of the U.S. If it does ever happen, that's what they're saying their demands are. And Israel is saying, yeah, give them, give them these guarantees. So white, writing in the Wall Street Journal, Cohen said that the U.S. should base the security guarantees on what it provides South Korea. He said, quote, my recent trip to South Korea in the demilitarized zone was revealing. South Korea, despite living under the shadow of a nuclear-armed neighbor and having the means to develop its own nuclear weapons, has abstained from nuclear weapons development. A comparable American defense pledge could reassure Middle Eastern nations, primarily Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, end quote. So Cohen appeared to be implying that Iran would be the nuclear-armed neighbor, that Iran would be the nuclear-armed neighbor. That's what he was implying in this. Um, but what's funny is that Israel is actually the only country with its own nuclear weapons in the region, and it does not declare its uh, arsenal in the Middle East. Um, if you just go over a little bit to Central Asia, you got Pakistan and India. But anyway, so you know the Israelis have the nuclear weapons, and there's no indication right now that Iran is trying to build them. So it's a point that I always have to make. And there's a recently released U.S. intelligence report that affirmed that that affirmed the Iranians are not building nuclear weapons. So Cohen said that if Iran acquired nukes, it would start a regional arms race, which ignores the fact that Israel already has a nuclear arsenal. The Israeli foreign minister called for unity between Gulf Arab states and Iran. Um, Sorry, I got to fix that. He called for unity between Gulf Arab states and Israel. That's a typo that I must fix. So he said, quote, a united front bringing together moderate Sunni nations in Israel would be an effective check on Iran's growing ambitions, end quote. So a major aspect of the normalization deal signed between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain was to form an anti-Iran alliance in the region, but there is a big wrench thrown into that plan after this surprise China-brokered normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, And it's unclear if, you know, now after that, if the Saudis would want to form some sort of anti-Iran bloc. But there's a huge risk if the U.S. does give the Saudis these guarantees, which would be kind of a, you know, what they want is like a NATO style treat an attack on Saudi Arabia as an attack on the U.S. You know, especially with the war in Yemen still not settled. I mean, that could really escalate. And then, you know, who knows what could happen. Um And there's also an Axios report on Wednesday that said the Israelis are looking for security guarantees as well, stronger security guarantees than what they than all the military aid that they already get. So they're kind of saying, all right, if the Saudis are going to get this, then we should get it, too. So it could turn into kind of a Middle Eastern NATO situation if this goes through. Um, But that is it for the news for today. Please go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Greg Mitchell, who's been just doing a great job. writing so much about the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and writing about Oppenheimer. Um, So the U.S. nuked Nagasaki 78 years ago, and Oppenheimer barely mentions it. That's over at Mother Jones. We also have one from him in the blog just about his experience going to Nagasaki. It's titled Nagasaki, Forgotten Bomb, Forgotten City. Uh, One from Dan Steinbach, The Nuclear Plan to Decapitate Russia and China and the Planet. Um, 
Go check that out. One from Doug Bandow, Biden's next big mistake, selling out America to Saudi Arabia. That's over at 1945. And that is about what I just covered, this potential Saudi-Israeli normalization deal. And one from Colonel Douglas McGregor at the American Conservative. Make peace, you fools, about the situation in Ukraine. And the spotlight is from Ted Galen Carpenter. Seoul needs to divorce from Washington. That's over at the Libertarian Institute. So go check all that out. Um, If you go into the blog, you'll see I was actually on Rising, the Hill YouTube show, um, talking about Victoria Nuland's little trip over to Niger. Niger, So you can check that out. Um, But that's everything. You could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe on YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, wherever you watch. Um, Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about antiwar.com. I'll be back tomorrow. Again, just a reminder, and I'll say it again tomorrow. I'm, uh, there's not going to be a Monday show. I'm taking a day off this weekend. Uh, but that's it. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.